Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, my name is Carl and welcome to City Reach here tonight. Uh, Our church exists to bring glory to God and joy to the city. So we exist for the joy of our city. We don't exist to beat up our city, but we do believe that we have great news that will bring great joy to everyone that would hear it. So you've come into week two of a series that is intended for your joy. We're in a series called Worldview, where every single week we're looking at a different worldview and how it stacks up against Christianity. So last week we looked at Christianity, tonight we look at Mormonism, Uh, the next week we look at Islam and then Catholicism, Judaism, Buddhism and Atheism. And the whole purpose of this series is for your joy, but we do have three very specific goals for this series. The first goal of this series is to show the strength of Christianity. So we need to let you know that this is not being presented to you as if it's a choose-your-own-adventure where we weigh everything equally and just present you with a choice and you choose. We do believe that um, Christianity stands firm against every other worldview in our culture. And so we do present a biased opinion, though it is not an uninformed biased opinion. Uh, We also have a second goal. Our second goal for this series is that we would present every worldview um, accurately and fairly. And we do know that in this world, when you're speaking about other worldviews, what can often happen is that you spend your whole time believing myths. And so when you get into a conversation with someone else, you end up just debunking myths the whole time. And so we want to fairly represent um, every single uh, worldview. So if you're taking notes tonight, a lot of the information that's come around in our conversation tonight on Mormonism is from a few pretty specific sources. You might like to look at um, a view called... uh, So what's the difference? It's a comparative study of 20 major worldviews. You might also like to look at a book um, by Dr. James White called um, Is the Mormon My Brother? Fantastic book, super helpful. Another great book is called How Wide the Divide. It's actually a conversation between a Christian and a Mormon, a guy named Stephen Robinson and a guy named Craig Blomberg, and they pull apart the faith because we want you to get an accurate picture. And so my hope is that if you're in here tonight and you would call yourself a Mormon or you would call yourself a Latter-day Saint, that you would be saying here tonight, yes, yes, that's exactly what I believe, even if you do disagree with the critique. We also have the third goal here tonight, and the third goal is to prepare you for mission. And I do have this friend uh, who says to me, he critiques me every time I say ATM machine. And he critiques me because ATM stands for automatic teller machine. And so if you say ATM machine, you're saying automatic teller machine machine. And so to call a Christian a Christian missionary is kind of repeating the same word. Christians are missionaries. Every single time you leave your bedroom door and you shut it behind you, you are on mission. And so the whole purpose of this series would be so that if in dinner time tomorrow night, it seems to happen around mealtimes, you get a knock on the door by a couple of well-dressed guys and they're in black pants and a white shirt, it wouldn't be annoying to you, it would be that great opportunity. And so we want to prepare you for mission. And so what do we mean by worldview? Well, last week we saw that there are a few questions that help us get our mind around what it means to understand worldview. We saw that at the very core, the first question that we could look at is, why is there something rather than nothing? Or where did we come from? The second question we could look at is, what's the purpose in life? Why are we here? What's our meaning in life? And then the third question is, where are we going? Is there any life after death? This is really going to frame our conversation here tonight about understanding how Mormonism stacks up against the Christian faith. But before we do that, we need to look at Galatians 1. So if you have your Bible open, you might like to stare down at Galatians 1. 
here tonight. And I'm going to start reading from verse 6. This is Paul writing to the church in Galatia. And he says this, I am astonished. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. By gospel, we mean the good news, the way of salvation. Verse 7, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So at this point in Paul's writing, all we can see is that he's surprised. So he can, he's surprised that the church is turning to another gospel. So you'll bump into different people that will claim to worship Jesus. So you'll bump into um, people from a Mormon background or a Jehovah's Witness background. And they'll claim, they'll claim to worship Jesus, but they'll be preaching a different gospel. So we need to ask, is that really a problem? It's, it might be surprising, but does Paul have really any issue with it? At the, at the moment, he's just stunned. Look down in verse 8. He says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. What does the word accursed mean? It means literally to be damned or to go to hell. Verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him go to hell or be accursed. Why does Paul use such strong language? Well, it's because if the way of salvation is not preached, then no one can accept this way of salvation. The gospel is not on the outer of the Christian faith. It is the dividing line of the Christian faith. If you change the gospel, then you really have no gospel. We need to ask the question tonight, is the gospel that other faiths preach, like Mormonism, is it an alteration, for the, an alteration of the gospel? Because Paul knew the power of the gospel and he called the world to believe it and he called the church not to touch it. So what you will hear in the Mormon language is that they believe in what is called a restored gospel. And we need to ask ourselves, is, is it a restored gospel or is it an altered gospel? And so we're going to use these, uh, these uh, worldview um, questions here tonight to frame our discussion. And we're going to get really wide and general and then we're going to get really narrow. So you're in for a big one. So lock the doors, guys. We're going to have a good, good time here tonight. So let's start with question number one. Where do we come from? According to Mormon theology. So about six months ago, um, my wife and I were at the um, teacher plaza and we were taking our boy uh, on the bus. If you're a young parent, kids love the bus. And so get your kid, go straight to the O-Barn, you will just $2 all afternoon, the best. And so we're unpacking stuff from the car and then I get like a couple of blokes come up behind me and there are a couple of Mormon guys and um, I, 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 was just, I was running out of time and I, I had a lot of stuff that was going on for me. But it's not very often that people come up to you, tap you on the shoulder and ask to talk to you about the gospel. And so I spent a bit of time with them and they explained to me um, a bit of their Mormon belief. And so according to Mormon theology, what they understand is that um, after the um, death of Christ and after the apostles all died off, um, there was this great apostasy in the church, meaning there was this great rejection of the gospel. And so uh, from the time of the death of the apostles through to about 1830, no one could become a Christian. No one could be saved. No one could experience the way of salvation because there was this great apostasy in the church. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know that because uh, a fellow named Joseph Smith told us that. And so Joseph Smith, uh, in about the 1820s, 
he uh, was looking at all the churches. He lived in New York, and he was looking at all the churches around, and he didn't know which church he was supposed to join. And so he prayed to God and said, which church should I join? And he claims that God the Father uh, arrived with God the Son and told him, don't join any of them. And then in the 1830s, uh, this, he claims that an angel named Marana, or Marana uh, rocked up and um, told him, uh, gave him the Book of Mormon and gave him these gold tablets. And so he was able to translate what is now called the Book of Mormon. And the Mormons believe uh, in uh, the New King James Version of the Bible, plus the Book of Mormon, plus another document called um, Doctrines and Covenants, plus another document called the Pearl of Great Price. And so what um, Joseph Smith believed was that this angel came and gold, gave him these gold plates. He also had these, um, what we would call uh, an occult uh, seer stone. So he would bury his head into his hat, and then he would look at these seer stones, and he would claim that this angel was speaking to him, that God was speaking to him, and he could convert um, these messages into doctrine. He also received um, this traveling merchant was passing through and he purchased some uh, ancient hieroglyphs and he was able to interpret that and we get what is called now um, the Doctrine uh, doctrine of Covenants, Pearl of Great Price and the Book of Mormon along with the New King, New King James Version of the Bible. That's what they believe. And all through this, what they believe is that they, um, they have the gospel of the restored gospel. So whenever you hear a Mormon, we're calling them Mormons here tonight, and just a point of clarification is that I always used to be confused about who were Mormons and who were the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's the same group, and the Book of Mormon just gave them the name Mormons. But in about October last year, they've rejected the name Mormons, and so they're just Latter-day Saints, but I'm calling them Mormons because it's a name we're all familiar with. And so they preached the restored gospel. So the question we need to ask tonight is, is the gospel that we hear from the Mormons, is it a restored gospel or is it an altered gospel? Because what should happen if it's a restored gospel is that what you read in the New King James Version of the Bible, it should be consistent with the extra three books and it shouldn't contradict the first one. We need to have a right understanding of restoration and not alteration. You understand? There's a um, very godly woman in our church named Sherilyn White. I don't know if you know Sherilyn White. Sherilyn White is a um, very, very talented uh, musician. She's a very, very talented doctor. And she's also apparently a very, very talented mechanic. And, and so um, Sherilyn had this plan to restore a 1970s uh, Mini Cooper. I think I've got a photo here, if you can chuck the picture up to the next slide. So... So Sherilyn went through this process of restoration, right? So this car on the left is what she was aiming for. The car on the right is what she's working with. So for her to do a restoration, her whole goal is to restore the, the, what's happened on the right back to its former glory. So if the Mormon are preaching a correct message, what they're saying is that they need these extra books to be able to restore back to the glory because it's been scratched or it's been defiled in some way. And so it doesn't contradict the original. It just restores what was there. So if I was to tell you that um, Sheridan White is this unbelievable mechanic and she's done an excellent job um, restoring this vehicle and what she made, this restoration, if we can pull up the next picture, looks like this. If I was to tell you that that's what she made, restoring it back to its former glory, you would see that that's not a restoration, that is an alteration. So now we have a problem, right? But we can see that Sherilyn did an excellent job restoring this vehicle. If we can just go to the next slide. She did an excellent job restoring this vehicle. Well done, Sherilyn. Just give her a round of applause. She smashed it. 
So in understanding the message of Mormonism, the Latter-day Saints, we need to ask the question, are they restoring something or are they altering something? I've got another example here for you. Go to the next slide. So what we have here is that in Canada there was this statue of Mary and the baby Jesus. And then so a thief came along and decided that they wanted the statue's head and so they cut off the head and took it home and someone in the community volunteered to restore the head. Is it a restoration or an alteration? What's, what's really funny about this example is that the thief, when he saw the alteration, felt so guilty about what had been done that he returned the original head. <laughs> there is a difference between a restoration and an alteration. So the claim of the Latter-day Saints is that their texts simply call for and describe the restored gospel. So let's ask the question, where do we come from? And you can test it yourself. Is this a restoration or is this an alteration? So this is, this, this is according to Mormon theology where we come from. So in, in the beginning, or uh, that's difficult to say with Mormon theology, there are these things called uh, matter and intelligences. So God didn't, God didn't invent matter. Matter already existed and God came out of matter. And all you and I used to be were these things called intelligences. Now, they, Mormons believe in this idea of um, eternal progression or eternal regression. And then so the God that we have, you're going to track with me, the God that we have used to be a man, and he got married and was exalted. He lived on, a, lived on his own planet, and then he lived a life of worthiness and was eventually exalted, got his own planet. And then on this planet, him, Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother had lots and lots of what they call spirit babies. And these spirit babies turned into what is you and I, but not yet. And so in what they call the pre-existence or the first estate, we all lived on this uh, planet or near this planet called Kolob. And on this planet called Kolob, in this pre-existence, Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother wanted us to be able to experience the same kind of exaltation that Heavenly Father experienced. And then so they had this plan of sending all of us down onto earth so that we could get a body, so we could be eventually exalted. But they needed a plan of how we would experience that exaltation. So... Heavenly Father went to his firstborn and his secondborn and said, you guys come up with a plan and I'll decide which one's best. His, heavenly, his two eldest boys were a boy named Jesus and a boy named Lucifer. And so he said, you guys come up with a plan. And so Lucifer came up with a plan that he would mind control everyone and that everyone would um, be forced to believe in Heavenly Father. Jesus came up with this plan that... Um, uh, Jesus would go down and he would take on the sins for everyone and that everyone would get free choice. Heavenly Father liked Jesus' plan and so chose him. Lucifer didn't like that very much. And so Lucifer and a third of all the spirit babies uh, rebelled against the other two thirds and they lost. And so they were sent down into earth, never ever being able to have a body and that's all the demons. Everyone else, you and I, we're all spirit babies. We all knew each other before, we've just forgotten it. We existed somewhere else and now we're given our bodies. So that's all of us, we're all spirit babies. So there's two groups of people, there's the, the, the demons and Lucifer and then there's all of us. There is a third group of people that they don't like to talk about, but in the Great War there was this group of people that didn't fight valiantly and those people were cursed with black skin. So every single person that you see that's walking around with black skin didn't fight valiantly in the fight. And a man named Brigham Young, who after, uh, after Mormonism was birthed through Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith uh, was killed in a shootout in a prison, 
And then the Mormonism split in two different directions. His wife took some people, and then a guy named Brigham Young took the rest. And Brigham Young was known as being quite a racist man, and the Mormon church doesn't deny that. They just say that in the time, everyone was racist, and he was just one of the kind of racists. I'm not saying that's a good argument. I'm just saying that that's the argument they give. So we need to ask the question, is that an alteration or is that a restoration? Do we see that in line with what we see in the Bible or is that something that we see that is completely new? So did we come from a pre-existence? Are we eternal creatures just like God? Because we need to see that the God was giving us the opportunity to become just as he is. So for God to be God, he was a man living on his own planet. But for him to be a man, there must have been a God before him. There must have been a man before him and a God before him and a man before him and a God before him. So they had this idea of eternal regression and this idea of eternal progression. Is that what we see in the Scriptures? Is Jesus no different than you or I? Is he just the one that came up with the best plan? Or is the Nicene Creed correct when it says this? We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten. So the Father was eternally the Father, the Son was eternally the Son, and the Spirit was eternally the Spirit. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. All things were made. Is that what we see in Scripture or do we see something else? The key to reconciling who we are is to understand this, um, this Mormon line that they use that is, as man is, God once was. For the restored gospel to be a restoration and not a transformation, we need to find evidence in the Bible of this idea of eternal regression and eternal progression that we can indeed become like God. So is God so commonplace that we can, through works and through righteousness, be exalted to a place where we can exist amongst the many gods. When we look at Scripture in the Old Testament and in the New, do we get this idea of many gods or do we get this idea of one God who has eternally existed? This is what it says in Psalms 90 verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed me, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. From everlasting to everlasting. Not just a long time, but God has forever eternally existed and it will forever eternally exist as God. That's the picture that we see in Scripture. Christian apologists say that um, it, when comparing Christianity to Mormon religion, that actually the Islam faith is much, much closer to Christianity because at least the Islam faith is a monotheistic faith, meaning that it believes in one God only. But Mormonism believes in an eternal number of gods. So we need to ask, when we go to the Old Testament, do we see that, 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 that the new Mormon scriptures are just restoring what is already there? Tidying things up, you might say? Or are they adding something completely new? Do we see the idea through the Scriptures that there are multiple gods that can be worshipped? Well, what I would say to you is that the Jews in the Old Testament had no concept of this whatsoever. Isaiah 43 verse 10. Before me, no God was formed, 
nor shall there be any after me. Isaiah 44 verse 6, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. What do we see in Scripture? Isaiah 44 verse 8, Is there a God besides me? There is no rock I know not of any. What was God's biggest charge against the Israelites in the Old Testament? It was idolatry. Worshipping false gods, not worshipping true gods that weren't worthy, but worshipping gods that were no god at all. What's the best example of this? Well, we see this in um, 1 Kings 18, when Elijah um, challenges the Israelite god um, Baal or Baal. And they, so they have this like they have this standoff where um, where uh, Elijah says you guys build um, you guys build a place where you guys can have an altar where you can have your worship and you cover it with wood and I'll build an altar and I'll cover mine with wood we'll put bulls on there you call your God to bring down fire from heaven and then I'll call my God to bring building bring down fire from heaven so we'll have this match and see whose God is legit and so what we see is that the Israelites danced from morning until evening and nothing happened. Nothing happened. Elijah had two very, very specific goals here. He was trying to show them that they, the God that they worshipped was no true God at all. And goal number two, to call the people to repent. God didn't celebrate. God didn't let people believe that there was this notion of multiple gods. God was jealous for worship. God was saying, worship no one but me. And Scripture is this constant testimony of calling people to know who they belong to. The people danced around from morning to evening and nothing happened. It comes to evening and then and Elijah says, cover my altar with water. The Bible says that um, there was trenches around the altar that were full of water because they had saturated the wood so far that he didn't want anyone thinking that it was a magic trick. He calls for God to burn up the bull, fire rages down, and then the Israelites respond appropriately. They respond rightly. They fall to their knees in worship and they say, the Lord, He is God. Yahweh, the Lord, He is God. They repeat it, right? They repeat it to emphasise the point that there is no other God besides our God. Not a multitude, multitude to choose from. What do the Christian scriptures claim? Well, in Jude 25, it says, To the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. That's what it says. That our God has eternally existed. We have not eternally existed. But we were knitted together in our mother's womb. Now, we did not, the scriptures do not testify that we came from a planet that's pre existent, this estate, this place called Kolob. But it does say that we were intimately formed in our mother's womb. That God knew before time that He would create us, and once He created us, He had this deep, intimate relationship with us, deep and intimate, and purposed it for His glory. So we need to ask the question what are we here for? What are we here for and where are we going? Well, let's ask, let's ask that question. And you need to understand in Mormon theology, it is almost impossible to separate these two questions. 
Why are we here and where are we going? In the book of Nephi, in 2 Nephi, this is the, um, uh, in, in the book of Mormon, 2 Nephi 25 verse 23, it says, For we know that it is by grace that we are saved, after all that we can do. For it is by grace that we are saved, after all that we can do. This is central to the Christian gospel, guys. This is grace plus works. This, this pushes against Christianity so far that they can't claim to restore the gospel. This is quite clearly an alteration of the gospel, which means that we do not have any gospel at all. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Why? Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. If you mess with the gospel, you lose Christianity. Uh, the, when the Mormons approached me, uh, and it was about October last year, I just, I just had no time. But it is true that I don't often get the tap on my shoulder. And so I gave them my number and I said, give me a call later in the week and we'll sort something out. And then so um, we decided to meet up at the Teacher Gully Library and to spend some time together. And they were, I knew they would come in pairs, so I brought team on with me. <laughs> and, um, and so we, we rolled in, and I'd, I'd, done, I'd gone down the rabbit hole of Mormonism for a, about a week in the, in the build-up, and I had, I had my guns loaded, right? And it is interesting that uh, you need to understand that debating um, is very, very different from apologetics, right? It, when you debate someone, you're trying to make their argument look so ridiculous that you come out as the victor. But when you're doing apologetics, you're not trying to become the victor. You're trying to get the opposition to change sides. So going in with a loaded gun, you need to be very careful about what that means inside your heart. And so I went in with the gun loaded, and um, things didn't go the way that I'd hoped that it went. My goal was to get another conversation. I just wanted to see them know the Lord. And there were a couple of young guys that had been sent over as missionaries from Utah. And um, I just wanted to build a relationship with them, and I was expecting that they would start shooting, and then I would put my shield up, and we would have a battle, and it would be a great sermon illustration. Where I look good, and now it's a great sermon illustration where I don't look good. And um, so we entered this conversation, and they say to me, uh, so what do you want to know? And I wasn't prepared for that. I was, a pre I was prepared for bullets to come flying. And then so I, I, said, so I said this statement, and this is not the statement that you want to say, Right? This is, it, was, it was real tragedy because after I said this, it was pretty much conversation over and we all left. We, we hung out for about 20 minutes. And so they said, oh, what do you want to know about us? And then so I led with, the reason why I think you're a cult is, and then explain what I thought by that. And certainly going into the conversation, I hadn't intended to start like that. And certainly when you go into a conversation, you, you, you don't want to go in with that idea in mind. Except that. The method was wrong, but that message is true. Is that as soon as you touch the divinity of Jesus, the Godhead and the gospel, you're now a cult. What is a cult? Well, at the very heart of it, it is someone who denies salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You mess with that, you're now living as a cult. So the method's totally wrong, but the message is true. You can't dance between Mormonism where they've altered the gospel, not restored it, and still claim to be a Christian. So let's briefly look at the way of salvation according to Mormonism, and let's ask the question, is this by grace through faith, 
in Christ alone, or is this something altogether different? Now, I found it really, really difficult to get large pictures of this, so I know that you can't quite see it very well, so let me explain what's going on here as best as I can in the time that we have. Um, After you live your life, there's four different places that you can end up. The first place is called outer darkness. You don't want to go there. And it's actually very, very difficult for anyone to go there. Outer darkness is where um, Lucifer lives, and Lucifer will end up there with all of his demons. And the only other people that will go there are apostate Mormons. So that's those people who are Mormons, so believe Mormon theology and reject it. So if you're a Christian here tonight, you're not an apostate Mormon. You need to believe in Mormon doctrine. And if you believe it and then work against it, then you end up in outer darkness. The next level that you go up to is the telestial level. So the telestial level, that is for um, non-believers and it's for thieves and it's for murderers. Um, Joseph Smith describes that um, space in such a way where he says, if you were even to glimpse the glory of the telestial level, you would commit suicide straight away. It is that glorious. Mormons don't want to go there, right? That's not salvation for the Mormons. That's where unbelievers go and the murderers go. The next level that you can go is the terrestrial level. That's where um, most of us would go. That's for people who are good, kind people who have believed something of the gospel but haven't, haven't believed in the full restored gospel. So we would end up in that middle place, the terrestrial level. The place that Mormons really, really want to go, they want to go to what they call the celestial kingdom. To go to the celestial kingdom, there are a whole bunch of things that you need to do. If you want to go to the celestial kingdom, you have to be married. If you want to go to the celestial kingdom and you are not married, you can go there, but you become a slave or a servant of everyone else. To get into the celestial kingdom, which is this top level there, there are five things that you need to do. Well, the first one of those is that you need to have faith. You need to repent. You need to be um, baptized by a priest in the, um, uh, in, the Aaronic tra- in the Aaronic tradition, so like a Mormon priest. You need to receive the laying on of hands from a Mormon priest. And fifthly, what you need to do is that you need to demonstrate continued obedience to gospel rules and principles as laid out by the various texts and Mormon presidents. So, for example, to get to the highest level of kingdom, you need to be married. So there are a whole bunch of things you need to do, and one of those things includes temple worthiness. So you need, as I explain this to you, I want you to ask yourself the question, is this grace alone or is this works? So to get into the temple, to be temple worthy... You go through, everyone knows where the temple is in Adelaide. You go, you've ever played a sport at Mars Basketball Stadium, you've driven straight past it. In Adelaide, we have, um, we have temples and we have churches, what they're called wards. To get into the temple, only the select few Mormons can get into the temple. But to get into the celestial kingdom, you've got to be temple worthy. How are you temple worthy? You sit two rounds of interviews, one at the ward or church level, and then another one at the um, state level. And they'll ask you 15 questions. Three of those questions are statements of faith, and the other 12 are all works-based, right? So let's, I'm just going to give you a couple of these questions and let's just see if you would pass the test, okay? To see if you are temple worthy. I'll go, we'll go hands up for the first one and then we better not go hands up for any of the others. <laughs> hands up for the first one. Um, do you drink coffee? Do you drink coffee? You're all out. <laughs> so in their text, Doctrines and Covenants, they've got, this, um, they've got this writing called Word of Wisdom and in that writing, if they, they, it lays out the things that you're supposed to be eating and drinking and avoiding and coffee's in there. So if you drink coffee, you're all out. Um, the second question, hands, hand up time is over. Uh, the next question is, uh, do you wear um, the uh, Mormon undergarments? 
So Mormons wear uh, this, uh, this underwear underneath all of their clothes. And they would say that the reason why they wear that is because it is, um, demonstrates their covenant to God. And so people have kind of mocked them for it and called it magic underwear. And then so their, their counter back to that is to say that it's not magic. It's just like a yarmulke that like Jewish people would wear or a priest wear a, like something around the neck. Or It's just our way of reminding them of, their, of covenant faithfulness. And the reason why I would push back on that is that you, you, don't, you say that it's just a symbol of covenant faithfulness and it's not magic. And it might not be magic that it gives you special powers in this lifetime, but it does get you entry into the celestial kingdom. So it doesn't do nothing. It does do something. It's not just a reminder like a wedding ring. If I take my wedding ring off, I've lost it because my boy threw it somewhere. I'm still married, <laughs> right? So it does do something for you. Another question I'll ask you is, um, do you tithe? And then so you might say no. And if you don't tithe, uh, or you, if you're not up to date in your tithing, they'll say that's okay. Would you like to make a restitution at this point? And so you can produce all your bank details and you can let them know what you earn um, uh, before tax. And if you've been giving to the church like based on that before tax wage, then you can be entering into the temple. And so the question we need to ask is, is that grace or is that works? Because the Mormon gospel is that you are saved by grace after all that you can do. And they would say to you that, no, no, after all that you can do, all that means is that you would repent. That's all that you can do. Except that salvation to the Mormon is a celestial kingdom that is entirely based on works. The message and the hope of the gospel, of the Christian gospel, the ancient gospel that we are saved by, that we know about Jesus by, is entirely based on Christ's sufficient work. Nothing to do on what you could do. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that's it. And that's the problem with witnessing to Mormons is because they use the same vocabulary but a completely different dictionary. When I say grace and they say grace, we mean two different things. Salvation for the Mormon and the Christian are two different things. Faith to the Mormon and the Christian are two different things. Do we have a restored gospel, or do we have a modified gospel? Friends, we have a modified, altered gospel, that it is no gospel at all. Paul says this in Romans 5 verse 20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So to the Mormon, the law are steps to get to the top of the kingdom. But to the Christian, all law does is reveal how desperately we need a saviour. If you have ever broken a bone, you've got an x-ray before, or you just um, freak out a lot and say so you've got x-rays. And then so um, I broke a couple of bones in my arm, went and they gave me an x-ray. And then so I, in the x-ray, they showed me that I had a couple of broken bones. Now, the wrong question to ask would have been, how many x-rays do I need to heal the broken bone? None. X-rays don't heal you. All an X-ray does is reveal how much you need a healer. See, all the, the law was never supposed to be steps that you would climb so that you would achieve what it means to live in the planet Kolob. That is good timing. The gospel of Mormonism is as manly as God once was, as God is, man may be. To them, their greatest treasure is the, that they would live in this life of 
progressive exaltation to get to the top level so that one day the, the wife and the husband might own their own planet. But the law was given, not so that you would climb, but the law was given of how desperately you need Jesus Christ and how insufficient you are. That is not bad news, that is good news because we have a saviour. We have a saviour, Jesus, who has done everything so that we might be in right relationship with him. Uh, The Apostle Paul was a bold man, but he also had times of great fear. And I might just ask the band to come back up at this point. Uh, The Apostle Paul was a bold man, but he did have times of great fear. And um, you'll see through Scripture that he was shipwrecked and he was beaten and he was... um, he was ridiculed. But it doesn't seem like a lot of the time in Scripture that, that he has a great fear about those things. Certainly he would have preferred for them not to happen. But he speaks about fear in a particular way. He says this from 2 Corinthians 11. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, by his cunning your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one that we proclaimed... Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put it up with it readily enough. Paul's greatest fear for the Christian church was that people would preach a different gospel and it would be readily accepted. Paul's greatest treasure wasn't to become God. Paul's greatest treasure was Jesus. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What he meant by that was that the greatest experience that you can have in your life is relationship with Jesus. And the only experience that is greater than that is that on the other side of death, you will live with Jesus forever. Not inherit a planet, not become God. The ancient gospel is true of 2,000 years ago and it is true today. It does not need restoration. It needs receiving. It needs receiving. You will never be a God. But the great hope of Scripture is that by His grace, you can be His child. You can love and serve your heavenly Father. You can receive grace. You can worship Him. You can declare the good news of the gospel. And that is our greatest treasure. We don't need to manipulate the gospel. We don't need to turn it and add righteousness to it. But tonight you can just receive it, knowing that nothing that you have ever done will divorce you from the hope of the gospel. And that nothing that you would do will ever add to the gospel. Everything has been done so that you might receive I would love to pray for us as a church if you'd be kind to bow in your head and close your eyes. God, we just want to be a faithful church that loves you and serves you and worships you. We know in this uh, city there are a great many gospels. People selling so many treasures that do not last, they fade away. God, would we be a people that would hold fast to the ancient gospel. The truth that Christ has done everything, everything, so that we might be called the children of God. That we don't need to add to it. That you are worthy of the worship that is due your name. That we have an everlasting Father. We have the Christ 
eternally begotten as the Son, the Spirit, eternally existing as the Spirit. God, we just pray for this city, God, where there are so many false idols, so many people that don't worship you and call upon your name. Would you help us be the church that brings them joy? Not that we would go out and we would start arguments, but that we would boldly proclaim in our workplaces, in our schools, in our universities, the greatness of King Jesus. And nothing needs to be added because everything has been done for your glory and your name's sake.